Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Louisiana this week, so you know it's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Louisiana. The boot state. The boob state? The boot state. It always looks like a oh, boot. Okay. Or a sock. A foot. The it foot does state. look like a boot. You're right. Or like a... Sometimes I think of it as like the front of a train. Oh, that's a good one. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. I did dig up some fun facts about Louisiana to get the scene set for this episode. Awesome. So my first fun fact. Louisiana is named after the Sun King, Louis XIV of France. I think that one's kind of understandable. That's pretty much a gimme, yeah. Uh, Another unique thing about Louisiana, unlike other U.S. states, it has unique regional subdivisions called parishes. Yep, I brought that up in my intro, actually. Oh, cool. Well, then you know, but our listeners might not know, that parishes are basically like counties in other states. And Mm -hmm. that the parish system was created actually after the Louisiana Purchase was completed in 1803. And the naming convention harks back to the territory's history of Roman Catholic, Spanish, and French sovereignty. There are 64 parishes in Louisiana today, and almost all of them align with the state's church parishes, which makes it a lot easier to discuss regions of the state. And that was especially true in the 19th century. Another fun physical fact about Louisiana is that the state's highest point is located east of Shreveport at Durskill Mountain. It's only 535 feet above sea level, though. Okay, yeah, there's like most of the south is like at or below sea level, so makes sense to me. Louisiana's lowest point and the second lowest point in the whole country, actually, is the city of New Orleans, which is eight feet below sea level, hence why it's a big problem when the levees fail. Oh, yes. Uh, Because of the state's low elevation, Louisianans have a unique way of interring their dead, which they do above ground in mausoleums instead of in earth burials. That's right. They have cities of the dead. Yep, yep. In New Orleans in particular, it's famous for these above-ground vaults in the three St. Louis cemeteries. So when you think of those big white mausoleum crypts, that's very typical of how you have to handle the dead, especially in some place like New Orleans. Another neat feature about Louisiana, and a personal fun fact since you know I love myself some bridges, is that the world's longest bridge over a body of water is the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway. I've always loved that name. Pontchartrain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it has like a certain sound to it that makes it fun to say it does uh the Pontchartrain causeway stretches nearly 24 miles and has two parallel spans the first of which opened in 1956 and the other opened in 1969 it even has its own website so that drivers can check traffic and weather updates view live feeds of the bridge and learn what to do in case their car sinks in the lake which i don't know about you is a personal fear of mine especially after watching beetlejuice Oh, yes, absolutely. I can see that. (laughs) Um, This is something I didn't know, but it totally makes sense after I read about it. Louisiana has one of the highest alligator populations in the country. Really? Actually, no, I could see with the bayous and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with an estimated 2 million in the wild and another 300,000 on alligator farms, the hide and raw meat industries in Louisiana collectively bring in around $57 million a year. Huh. Yeah. Because normally, like, when I think of alligators, I think of Florida, first of all. Exactly. Always Florida. But I could definitely see Louisiana at least being a contender, but I didn't know that it was the most. Yeah. 
Uh, Roughly 1.4 million people attend Mardi Gras in New Orleans every year. Don't do it, folks. (laughs) I I agree. I've heard from people who've been that it's kind of shitty so well it's kind of nuts if you think about it so 1.4 million people come into the city to celebrate mardi gras but the population of new orleans itself the rest of the year is only slightly more than a quarter of that over it's about 390,000 people so you're talking about this like tripling quadrupling almost the city's population (laughs) oh yeah that doesn't seem fun no, I mean, it's it's utter chaos. It's very loud. There's no room for anything. You're going to have vomit on the streets and other bodily secretions because people don't know that you're really not supposed to do certain things in public. <laughs> I kind of picture like when you see that scene of like Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras, it immediately yeah. falls into that category in my head of like Times Square on New Year's, except not as yes. unbearably cold. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah. I don't know who would want to do Times Square on New Year's because it's freezing out. Um, oh, and one last bonus fun fact to wrap up our Louisiana state facts. The official colors of Mardi Gras are purple, green, and gold. Mm-hmm. And they actually signify justice, faith, and power. That I didn't know. Yeah, I knew the colors, but I didn't know they actually had a, a symbolic meaning. Yeah. But yeah, those are my f- couple of fun facts about Louisiana. Just a small sampling. There's a lot to, more to learn about the state of Louisiana. That's really cool. Like I, um, I was at the thrift store like a few weekends ago, and I actually found some Mardi Gras masks, like these porcelain Mardi Gras masks. And I thought they were really cool, so I was going to buy them until I realized, what am I going to do with these? I have nowhere to put them. Mm. So I did not. I, uh, I have too many Mardi Gras beads. The cats love them. Oh, yeah. I used to have Mardi Gras beads hanging from my uh, rear view mirror in my car. And that was the only way in in college that I could tell my car apart from the other gray Kia. <laughs> so, Eden, you have a true crime story for me today? I do. My story for this week takes place in Lafayette, Louisiana. Lafayette is the county seat of Lafayette Parish. Because if you weren't aware, which we just talked about it, so you are aware now, Louisiana is super religious and doesn't have counties. They have parishes. Uh, Lafayette is located along the Vermilion River and is the fourth largest city in the state with a population of 126,185 residents. Hmm. It also has an area of 55.65 square miles, giving it plenty of room to house so many people. The city was originally founded as Vermilionville in 1821, but changed its name to Lafayette in 1884, being then named after the uh, Marquis de Lafayette. The culture you will find here is mostly Cajun with lots of people who speak French and are Roman Catholic, or at least that's what they say. They could be dabbling in something much different, but I'll let you decide when you hear my story. Uh, If you're looking for things to do in this city, there's a lot to choose from. You could visit the Acadian Center for the Arts. There's a reconstructed Cajun Bayou community called Acadia Village, which you could also visit, along with Vermilionville Historic Village, which preserves both Cajun and Creole traditions. If you want to go to a church, however, you might want to stay away from the Church of Sacrifice, a major player in my story about the first Black female serial killer, Clementine Barnabet. Ooh. I've never heard of her. I hadn't either before this. Um, 
Now, Nicole, I think that I've mentioned before about the statistics of serial killers, right? And, you know, how rare this is. Yes. Because serial killers are usually white males. So finding a black female serial killer is as rare as finding a store stocking a PlayStation 5 right now. <laughs> that is pretty damn rare. <laughs> uh, our introduction to Clementine, however, isn't anything rare at all in regards to serial killers. Not much is really known about her early childhood, but we do know, surprise, surprise, that she had a shitty one. She was born in 1894 in St. Martinsville, Louisiana, which is roughly 16 miles away from Lafayette. Her father's name was Raymond, and her mother's name was Nina Porter. She also had a brother named Zephyrin. Uh, according to what I was able to find... Raymond was kind of an all-around terrible person. He was an abusive alcoholic, and his rage was directed toward the entire family. He was also not faithful to his wife and had at least one mistress that we know about. Uh, he worked as a sharecropper. Do you know what a sharecropper is, Nicole? Sort of. It's kind of. It's like somebody who works land, but they don't necessarily own the land. Is that accurate? Pretty much. Basically, he would, um, I'm not sure if he owned the land, but I don't think he did. I think he was the other end of it. So basically, he would farm on someone else's land and then give them a cut of the harvest in return for letting him use that space. Gotcha. And the crops weren't the only way he was making money, however, because he was also a petty criminal. Oh. So again, not really shocking. Like I said, we don't know much about her childhood, but we do know that she moved with her family in 1909 to Lafayette. And this is where things got interesting. From all accounts, the family had a pretty lousy reputation in the town of Lafayette. And while it might be warranted, there are other reasons why it might not be. Uh, this is the Deep South in the early 1900s, and Black people were still very much second-class citizens. So who knows if this was maybe the thoughts of their racist neighbors, or if they really were just not the best. And here's a reason why them just being rather shitty might also be true instead. Different sources said different things, so this is up for debate here, but Clementine and her family either joined or ran a cult called the Church of Sacrifice. Hmm. Keep in mind that Clementine was only 17 years old at this point. Uh, most of the research showed that her family did in fact start this cult, but they've done a lot of other shitty things, so I don't want to accidentally throw more their way. The Church of Sacrifice is an offshoot of a church in Lake Charles, Louisiana, called Christ Sanctified Holy Church, or at least that's what they said. Uh, I don't really know how they're linked, but according to Wikipedia, this was where they branched off of. So this cult had a strong belief in hoodoo, which is very different from voodoo, and I will explain how now. So get those notebooks out and pencils at the ready, because class is now in session. Voodoo is a religion that came over from Haiti with the slave trade. Uh, they pray to many different gods, or the Loa as they are called. Uh, these Loa were mixed into French Catholicism, so the enslaved people could continue to practice their religion without so much fear of persecution. They use depictions of saints to represent the Loa, and it's pretty similar to Santeria in that way where even their deities have similar names and functions, which in Santeria, they're called the Orishas. They're pretty much sister religions. The main different, but main difference, but far from the only one is that Santeria came from Cuba, not Haiti. 
yet both are steeped in traditions from African Yoruba tribe from the African Yoruba tribe. Hoodoo, however, is very much a homegrown faith. It started in Louisiana, also through the slave trade. And although some things, again, can be similar to voodoo, it's not at all the same. Their spells are not called spells. They are called chores or root work. It's similar to powwow in that way, uh, that it's more of a folk magic sort of thing. If you remember powwow, I'm sure, Nicole. Heck yeah. Throw back to an early episode. Um, so anyway, the congregants of this religion uh, were told that they could be free of all the bullshit life can throw at you if they'd only do this one itty-bitty little insignificant thing called human sacrifice. Wait, what? Record scratch. Yeah, so the Church of Sacrifice, as the name may have given away, was all about killing people wow, that's to better yourself. Wow, that's really on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to throw out a little disclaimer here and say that this isn't really what hoodoo is about either. So just do some research because these people are just nuts. Anyway, everyone was given a conjure bag, which is a big thing in hoodoo. Conjure bags can be for pretty much anything, but this one was meant to make the holder undetectable to the police and grant them other powers as well. So Clementine at this point is like, seems legit. Let's try it out. So. In January of 1911, the police in West Crowley, Louisiana, get a call and come out to a house to find a man, woman, and child lying in bed with their skulls split. Any idea who could be responsible? I'll give you a hint. It's not Lizzie Borden. Scene, as you can imagine, was just a fucking bloodbath. Blood everywhere. And I'm also going to say that her conjure bag needed a little more magic because she left some bloody footprints on the floor. Not quite as slick as she wanted to be, I'm sure. Yikes. So police believe that she came in through a window, just like that lit song. <laughs> and she also left behind a bucket of blood, not the B-movie. And also, the fucking murder weapon. I know this is before forensic science, but seriously, just leaving that axe anywhere, I guess. So it was reported as the most brutal murder in that part of the state. Other similar murders began popping up around the state and even into Texas, and it wasn't until later that they were connected back through rumors of a cult to the Church of Sacrifice. Second murder of this sort took place in Crowley, and it was the same. A husband, a wife, and child all killed with an axe blow to the head. Next murder took, a few, uh, took place a few months later, and it was four people this time, all members of the Andrews family, again, all killed with an axe. Then another month passes, and Alfred and Elizabeth Cassaway, as well as their three children, are murdered in the same way in San Antonio, Texas. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the police were at a complete loss as to who was doing all of this, but they did know at least that these murders had to be connected somehow, or at least that's what they assumed. Then, in a very weird turn of events, Raymond's mistress who got mad at him after a fight, told a friend that she thought he might be involved in the murders. The friend then told police, and Raymond was arrested for the murders. When this case went to trial, and you know how much I love when shit goes down at a trial, mm -hmm. they had both Clementine and Zephyrin testify against their father, and Clementine was all about getting her father locked away. 
She told this crazy story about how he came home one night drenched in blood and then threatened to kill them if they said anything. This story was then backed up by Zephyrin and said Raymond had even bragged about killing the Andrews family. They also both said that they didn't know what their father would do to them if he left a free man, which honestly was probably true enough. Yeah. Accurate statement. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe the only truthful part of their testimony. <laughs> exactly. Um, he was thrown in jail, but I guess Clementine either didn't just count her blessings or she really trusted that conjure bag because she committed another murder while her father was in jail because she's apparently not that smart. Or she developed a taste for it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Her victims this time were Norbert Randall, his wife, their three children, and their nephew for some extra flavor, I guess. This murder was only uh, slightly different from the others. Everyone but Norbert, was all, they were all killed with an axe, like usual. But she shot Norbert in the head for some reason. We don't know why she chose to shoot him and axe everybody else, but I don't know. At this point, the police were like, okay, enough. We've obviously been conned, but I still feel like this family is involved. So we're just going to arrest both the children now. Hmm. So good on their word, they arrest both Clementine and her brother Zephyrin. I know I just made it sound like they had no real reason to suspect Clementine in this, but they actually found blood from the Anders family murder uh, on some of Clementine's clothes, which she played off by saying, yeah, my dad wiped it there. He's crazy. <laughs> like, we're going to believe that. Nice try. So they decided to search the house at this point, and they found something really awful and totally damning for Clementine. It was a full set of her clothes that were just covered in blood and human brains what yeah she's not a cleaner i know that's so weird or why did why wouldn't she burn that i guess i don't know um, maybe she was going to use it later for something maybe she liked the feel and smell i don't i don't really know it's not like it's she liked the way the brain slid across her skin not like it's been freshly laundered and gained jesus it's yeah it's really sick but she yeah just left those clothes there and is like these are my murdering clothes um <laughs> So I don't know. Uh, the latch on her door was also covered in blood. So yeah, let's just say she needed to clean the damn house more. But Eden, she has so many murders to do. Yeah, exactly. She couldn't find time with her busy murdering schedule, I guess. <laughs> you know, going all the way to Texas and stuff. Her brother ended up not being arrested since he had an alibi for the murders. But obviously Clementine wasn't so lucky. So at this point, Clementine is in jail. And it's now January of 1912. And more weird murders are happening that are very similar, except this time the killer, or possibly killers, left a note. So three more families have been murdered at this point, and the third one was the one with that note. Hmm. Some people say this was written on the wall with pencil, but others say it was written in blood, which just adds a little creep factor to it. 100% extra creep. And here, ready to, to shiver your brains out. It said, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Oh, my God. It sounds super creepy, and it's actually taken from a psalm in the King James Version of the Bible. So the really weird thing about this 
was that it was signed the Human Five. Hmm. This is where they start thinking that these killings might not be one person and more of an organization supposedly led by Clementine Barnabet. So the papers started referring to them as the Human Five Gang. Going through everything, I was able to figure out where the connection to uh, the Christ Sanctified Holy Church came from, and it just creates more questions than answers, really. They thought that a reverend of the church by the name of King Harris was running the Church of Sacrifice and brought him in for questioning, but he had never even heard of it. But his sermons were possibly what led people to want to start this cult. Hmm. So basically he was just preaching and he had nothing to do with it. Like a bunch of people who were inspired by his words decided to take it upon themselves to start a murder cult. Exactly. He's basically Salinger. Wow. Yep. Catcher in the Rye made me do it. Anyway, it wasn't until April 5th of 1912 that Clementine decided to confess to what she had done and ended up going above and beyond, confessing to 17 murders, which later she confessed to a total of 35, but people don't really believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, if she actually did commit 35 murders, she would be like incredibly prolific. She ended up saying that the reason that she killed the children, too, is because she didn't want them to be orphans. Because remember, guys, she's a really good person. Yikes. So she was just looking out for their best interest. So she also listed a bunch of accomplices. But when the police checked her story, it just didn't seem to add up, which is what happened with most of what she said on these murders. So, you know, she also said something really disturbing which was that she would caress the bodies of her victims after she killed them. No, no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> yep. So here's the big kicker of this story. Apparently, Clementine is just so unreliable that there's a good chance that there never even was a church of sacrifice. What? Yep. Part of it could just be that it was sensationalized in the media, that maybe these had something to do with voodoo rituals, because they kept referring to it as voodoo. Mm-hmm. Although it was actually hoodoo, but you know, newspapers are weird. Um, so it's possible there wasn't a church of sacrifice and she just latched onto the media story. Mm-hmm. And then um, also every time the police would question her about the crimes, the details would change. And so would the number of victims. Hmm. So by the age of 19, she was sentenced to life in prison for her crimes, but that was certainly not the end of her. Just a year after being in jail, she escaped prison, but was subsequently recaptured. After that, they said that she was a model prisoner and apparently underwent some sort of treatment, which supposedly alleviated all of her problems and made her a normal person. This could have been the lobotomy, it sounds like. I don't know, though. Then, after serving only 10 years of that life sentence, she's released. And even weirder... To this day, no one knows where she went after that. She just vanished, and she was never seen or heard from again. Wow. So what do you think, Nicole? That is the end of my story. Uh, That does not seem like a real thing that happened, but it definitely is a real thing that happened. Yeah, it was bizarre. It was the weirdest one that I could find. So, of course, I see weird. <laughs> I'm going to cover it. Yeah. I just, I, I'm just kind of flabbergasted, honestly, because it just seems so... So she just disappeared. No one ever saw her saw her from her again. No, no one ever noticed where she went. No one knew. And 
she was quote unquote fine after her quote unquote treatment. Yeah. Interesting. Cause it seems like if she was going to return to her old habits, it would have popped up somewhere, but maybe, maybe she was truly fine. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Wow. It is very strange. Such a weird piece of history. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun to cover because it was really just interesting. And you're like, what is going on the entire time? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. None of us really know the truth of what happened because obviously Clementine can't get her story straight. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure she killed some of them, but others may have been copycat murders. Uh, some of them may have been the rest of her family. Anyway, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, GraveReviews.com, a clip from Serial Killing, a podcast on Clementine Barnabé, a Barnabet from uh, YouTube, MentalFloss.com, NewYorkDailyNews.com, because if it's weird, you know you can find it there, <laughs> and then, oddly enough, Cosmopolitan.com. Wow. Covering ladies, no matter what. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Maybe they were like, brains is the new accessory for the season. <laughs> you really want to make sure your brains are asymmetrical to really give it a natural <laughs> flow. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, truly horrifying <laughs> true crime story, Eden. Absolutely. So I guess we'll take a short break and then I will be back with a paranormal story for you. And I'll be back with a weird news story. Woot woot. And we're back. We're back. So I have an interesting news story. It was actually like really weird because I found this one that sounded interesting, but it turned out just to be really sad and not funny. So I didn't do it. Well, um, thank you for sharing me this, saving me from the sadness. Yeah, because it was like about like this, these people that like hired a hitman to kill someone and he ended up killing the wrong person. Ugh, I'm getting sad, Eden. So it sounded like it was going to be like at least darkly funny. But it was just really depressing, so I didn't do that one. Instead, what I have for you is Suburban Illinois Bridge hit by truck for 14th time since summer. A box truck crashed into a historic Illinois bridge with a low clearance, the 14th such incident since the bridge was reopened following repairs in 2020. Oh, my God. Yes. Witnesses said that they saw the truck approaching the bridge on Robert Park Coffin Road in Long Grove. Well, that's a dark name. I know. It was like they wanted this to happen. <laughs> um, it was apparent that the top of the vehicle was going to collide with the bridge cover. John Kopecki, I believe that last name's pronounced, so sorry, John, if I pronounced your name wrong, said he was outside in his business, um, outside his business with a few, with a friend Monday. I can't read today. Wow. Okay. Then they saw the truck headed toward the bridge and shouted for it to stop. Kopecki captured video of the collision, which occurred right after a witness shouted, say goodbye to your truck. <laughs> wow. Even the locals are like, these idiots. Exactly. Because this happens so frequently. Because, uh, I mean, 14th time since summer, but it was just repaired for the same thing happening. Um, so the Lake County Sheriff's Office said 13 previous reports of the bridge being struck by oversized vehicles were recorded since it reopened after repairs in August 2020. Officials said Monday's crash did not cause any serious damage to the structure. The bridge was struck by a bus just one day after its initial reopening. Oh, my God. And, and was struck a second time the following day while a news crew was recording a segment on the incident. 
how low is this bridge? It makes me wonder. Like, I guess buses and like box trucks, they're pretty tall. But like a news van, maybe it wasn't a news van. Maybe it was like a proper news truck. I don't know. I I think like low clearance bridges are like 13 feet and under or something. Uh, Because I've actually, it's funny because I've actually watched videos of this and it's very calming and soothing for me to watch buses crashing into bridges. I don't understand why. (laughs) But there's a ton of YouTube videos. Just type in low clearance bridge into YouTube and you will get a shit ton of videos of buses crashing into low clearance bridges. This is not just localized to that area. This happens in a lot of places. Wow. Or maybe for all I know, I've seen this bridge be crashed into. I don't know. (laughs) What was it called again? Uh, The bridge? Yeah. Uh, the bridge was called. Uh, okay, let's see. Historic blah blah blah. Uh, it just says the the bridge on Robert Park Coffin Road. Robert in Long Grove. Robert Park Coffin Road. Okay. Robert Parker Coffin. Okay. Robert Parker Coffin. Gotcha. Yeah. So, it's I I would recommend watching some videos of buses crashing into low clearance bridges because you're just like no no don't 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 oh there it is <laughs> and then next year i'm like yep you're a dumbass like <laughs> you just get so used to it i also like watching it's weird because uh seeing a car wreck in real life is terrifying mm-hmm. but watching people driving poorly on youtube is amazing <laughs> and i don't get it i love just watching people be idiots on youtube I'm Maybe sure that it's... says something about me as a person. I don't know. I'm sure it's just the disconnect between actual and uh, after the fact. Exactly. We live in a society where we've been desensitized to so much. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All righty, Nicole, you got your story for me. I do. I do. So today we're heading to New Orleans, the most populous city in Louisiana, with about 390,000 residents. Uh, The Consolidated City Parish of New Orleans covers about 350 square miles or so. Now, the city was founded in 1718 as La Nouvelle Orleans, a.k.a. New Orleans in French. Exactly. Uh, The founders were part of the French Mississippi Company under the direction of Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville. And it was named for Philippe II, Duke of Orleans who was the regent of the kingdom of France at the time. He was the regent for King Louis XV. Okay. We know about regents because of Game of Thrones. (laughs) Now, the French colony of Louisiana, which includes New Orleans, was ceded to the Spanish Empire in the 1763 Treaty of Paris. The colony remained under Spanish control until 1803, when it briefly reverted to French rule before the colony was sold to the United States through the Louisiana Purchase. With its rich French, Spanish, and American history, New Orleans is world-renowned for its distinct music, a.k.a. Zydeco and jazz, mm-hmm. Creole cuisine, unique dialects, and its annual celebrations and festivals, most notably Mardi Gras and, in my book, Jazz Fest. Now, that being said, I love New Orleans. I've been there a couple times, and it's absolutely one of my favorite cities to visit. I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It truly is. I a- love the architecture. Yep. And I enjoy the people there. They're very, they have a very relaxed kind of way about them, which I enjoy. True. If I was going to be a snowbird, I would 100% choose New Orleans over Florida as my winter destination time and time again. Florida's overrated. It's fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Now, I've discovered some of my favorite foods like chicory coffee with lots of milk, beignets, crawfish, or shrimp etouffee, and of course, bananas fosters all in the Crescent City. Of course, you and your bananas. Yeah, me and my bananas. Uh, I've also discovered some of my favorite cocktails in New Orleans as well, which really isn't a surprise given the city's... What, a zombie and a hurricane? Oh, no, my friend. There's such a richer tradition of cocktails in New Orleans. Really? Mm-hmm. So aside from the, what would you say, hurricanes and <laughs> uh, hand grenades and the daiquiris that you think of when you think of Bourbon Street... New Orleans is actually the origin point for not one, but two of my favorite cocktails, the Zazerac and the Vucare. I've heard of them. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about them before I get into my story, which is definitely related to cocktails. The Zazerac is actually probably one of the oldest cocktails in American history, if not the oldest. It's really back and forth between that and the old fashioned. Okay. Makes sense for the old fashioned. Yeah, for sure. Uh, supposedly, it was invented in the late 1930s by Antoine Amade Peychaud in his pharmacy on Royal Street, and it consists of absinthe, cognac, simple syrup, and, of course, Peychaud's bitters. He supposedly named the drink after the brand of cognac he used to drink, which was Zazerac de Forge et Fils. But when cognac dried up temporarily in the 1870s, the citizens of New Orleans started making a version of the Zazerac with rye whiskey. And today, that's the most prevalent variety of a Zazerac you'll see, and it's also my favorite variety. I've told you about how much I cannot stand when people mispronounce certain things, which is also why I try to look up, you know, what I'm saying before I say it on here and feel really bad if I mispronounce something. Mm -hmm. At work, we have some things that get labeled cognac for the color. And sometimes people come to me, yeah, well, this is supposed to be the cognac one. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what did you just say to me? The cognac. <laughs> Just like when I worked at Kohl's and we got quesadilla makers and they were like, do you have any of those quesadilla makers? Wow. Yeah. Cognac. I'm going to chuckle about that for days. <laughs> cognac and quesadillas. Uh, the second cocktail I mentioned that's also one of my favorites is the Vucare. It's a much more modern cocktail. It was invented in the 1930s by Walter Bergeron the head bartender at Hotel Monteleone in the French Quarter. The drink, again, consists of rye, cognac, sweet vermouth, uh, Peychaud bitters, and Benedictine, which is this French liqueur that's kind of like yep. honey, but it's very spicy. I'm trying to remember what it's flavored like. I want to say it's like elderflower or elderberry or something. It actually has like 27 different like, like spices and herbs in it, so it's very just like that botanical flavor, and then it's super sweet. It's one of the weird things that like bars don't necessarily have on the shelf. It's true. It's true. If you see a, a, a Vucare at a bar, it's usually because it's some kind of like special occasion cuisine bar or they specialize in like rye or whiskey cocktails. Or they have a certain patron that comes in all the time and it's their favorite. So they stock mm -hmm. it just for them. Exactly. So I think it's kind of interesting because if you think about these two cocktails, like the Zazerac is basically like the New Orleans twist on an old fashioned. And then the Vucare is like a New Orleans twist on a Manhattan, which are two of my other favorite drinks. So it all makes sense why I like these drinks so much. You are such a bitter, bitter woman, Nicole. <laughs> I am. No, I like them too. I also like um, Negronis. Yes. Which are also very bitter. Yes, yes. The slow sippers. 
Um, interestingly enough, the Vucure is actually the French name for Old Square, which is what they used to call New Orleans French Quarter. So when Bergeron was naming his cocktail, he was like, let's name it after the quarter. And he called it the Vucure. Uh, the French Quarter is the historic heart of the city, if y'all don't know. This area absolutely exudes the city's past with occasional cobble streets and brick sidewalks. You'll see a lot of French and Creole, Spanish Creole architecture. Uh, the French Quarter is also home to a vibrant nightlife, especially along, you guessed it, Bourbon Street. Which my parents, well, my, my parents, my mom and my sister went there for my mom's, I think, 50th birthday it was. Nice. Um, and they went to New Orleans and they really didn't like Bourbon Street because they're like, it's just very dirty, yes. is what they said. 100%. Like Bourbon Street, like you have to, when you first go to, the first time you go to New Orleans, you have to walk down Bourbon Street. But most people I know, including myself, like walked down it and went, so where are we going now? <laughs> yeah, like that's the general consensus that I've gotten to is that it's like you have to do it because it's like that's the street you hear about in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no one really wants to be there except maybe the locals. I don't know. Probably not, no. <laughs> um, I think the locals definitely try to avoid Bourbon Street. I feel like it's like their Times Square, but smaller. True. Um, while I have been to the French Quarter several times, and I can attest to that uh, I usually go off the quote-unquote beaten path of <laughs> Bourbon Street to find a bar or a restaurant, I was curious to see just how many bars, venues, and music venues and restaurants were in the French Quarter. I was not able to find a concrete number, but I did discover that there are about 400 active liquor licenses registered to addresses in the French Quarter. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and the cool thing about Louisiana, which is different, or new I don't know if it's Louisiana or New Orleans, but is that as long as your alcohol is in a plastic container, you can drink on the street. Yeah, they have open container law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the oh, here's the crazy part, right, about that 400 liquor liquor licenses is that the entire area of the French Quarter only covers that whole neighborhood only covers about a square mile <laughs> so oh wow yeah so it's a lot of places to eat and drink and listen to music within like a square mile of New Orleans that's incredible mm -hmm. now given the history and the energetic nightlife in the French Quarter it should be no surprise that some of the revelers have stuck around long after the party and their journey on this mortal coil have ended. Today, we're going to stop at two of Norland's most haunted and historic bars slash restaurants. Ooh. First up, a listener request. And I've had this listener request for ages, so I'm excited to finally be able to get there. That's the only thing with like our format is it's like, yeah, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> like, <laughs> do we keep track of them? Trust me. Now, on the corner of Bourbon Street and St. Philip Street sits a single-story colonial brick building. One of the oldest buildings in the city, actually. Open catty corner doors and a hanging wooden placard welcome visitors to Jean Lafitte's blacksmith shop. When you step in, you can try the signature cocktail, the Voodoo Daiquiri, a.k.a. Purple Drank. Purple Drank. Purple Drank. It is their house drink. It is a sweet, grape-flavored frozen daiquiri spiked with bourbon and Everclear. I actually had um, this one grape-flavored vape juice. That was called Purple Drank. <laughs> it was good. All right. Well, then I'm going to sign you up for, to, to be the person who gets the voodoo daiquiri when we go to Jean Lafitte's blacksmith shop then. All right. <laughs> now, while you're enjoying your frozen concoction in the gaslight, 
That's right. Jean Lafitte does not have any modern electrical lighting inside. It's completely candle lit and gaslight lit. That's so cool. It's super cool. I mean, I've been gaslit before and it wasn't cool, (laughs) but this is cool. You might have the chance to uh, encounter a ghostly spirit within the haunted bar. It's considered the most haunted bar in New Orleans. Huh. Now, one ghost who is reported numerous times is, that's right, the man himself, Jean Lafitte. Who is a thought you were going to say that? (laughs) Who is a 19th century privateer and smuggler? Uh, Jean, along with his brother Pierre, used the building as a warehouse and a front slash market for the goods they would smuggle into the city during the early 1800s. During the War of 1812, Lafitte harassed British supply ships as a privateer and also fought alongside Andrew Jackson during the Battle of New Orleans. Um, he's very much considered a decisive fighter, and the, the men that were under his command were uh, considered very important to the victory of the Battle of New Orleans as well. So he was kind of considered a hero and a patriot after that. Huh. Yeah, very interesting. Oh, and um, for those of you that fell asleep during history class, uh, privateer is pretty much a pirate. A pirate who is sanctioned by some country or another to be a pirate. Sadly, uh, this fame and glory did not last long for Jean Lafitte. He died at sea almost a decade later. Now, witnesses have reported seeing a full-body apparition of him at the bar. They say he's often in a darkened corner, and he looks like a patron who's basically just dressed up in period clothes. They say that his spirit has a particular preference for the ladies, and that he'll often grin or wink at ladies Ugh, creeper winks again. <laughs> More creeper winks. Does he also tell them to smile? <laughs> I hope not. Um, but the sightings don't stop there. In the later part of the 19th century, the upstairs area, it's kind of a, like a loft area, was supposedly rented to a mysterious woman who ended up committing suicide there. We don't know much about this woman, but patrons say they've encountered her very talkative spirit over the years. Um, Several have reported occasions on late nights when they feel something cozy up to them and whisper sweet nothings into their ear. Oh. Yeah. Talk about a way to get get people out for a last call. Like, Damn. No, I don't want to go here now. (laughs) Um, The last and perhaps most disturbing apparition at Lafitte's is a set of disembodied piercing red eyes. Oh. Yeah. So these eyes will glare out from the unlit corners of the bar room or even the back of the fireplace. Are they sure that it's not just someone who smoked a lot of pot? Or had too many voodoo daiquiris? Because, I mean, the room is dark. It like, is dark. If it's only lit by candles and gaslights. I feel like that is part of the apparitions at the Jean Lafitte's because it's, it is such a dark bar room. Like, I, I have it actually ordered from there because when a couple times when I've been in New Orleans, we've walked up there and it's always very packed because it's very popular. Yeah. But it is. It's super dark inside. Like if you would or even when you're there, like in the daytime, it's still kind of dark inside. So I can understand why people might kind of like start to see things um, or have their eyes, quote unquote, play tricks on them um, when they're yeah. in this particular establishment. Now, these eyes are super creepy and people even say they kind of have this de- demonic vibe. So they're described as red and that they glare menacingly at you. And at first you'll notice them like kind of in the corner of your vision. And then when you turn to look at it, they'll just glare back at you for a second before fading away. Ew, I don't like that. Right? How fucking creepy is that? 
So that is Jean Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. Um, I highly recommend it. It's very easy to get to in the French Quarter, and um, it definitely has like that old New Orleans vibe if you're looking to explore a little bit more of the city's history as you, when you're, you know, sick of Bourbon Street and you have to get the hell off of there. Sounds good to me. All right, next up, we're heading to Jackson Square. Jackson Square is the historic French Quarter Park that features an equestrian statue of namesake Andrew Jackson at its center. The north side of the square hosts St. Louis Cathedral at its center, the second oldest cathedral in the contiguous United States. I think if anybody, if you look up pictures of New Orleans, you will definitely see a picture of Jackson Square with the big white cathedral in the back. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely uh, square. It also abuts the river walk and is very close to Cafe du Monde. So if you want to go for a lovely stroll around a park and then snack on some beignets and delicious chicory coffee, this is the place to go in my book. Very nice. Next to the cathedral on the north side of the square, kind of catty corner, across Chartreuse Street is our stop, Muriel's. Muriel's Jackson Square opened its doors in 2001 after extensive renovations of the building that it resides in. And it's basically been renovated back to like the mid 19th century kind of style that the building was in. And it is literally what you think of when you think of New Orleans with, you know, the big, like the three story building with the second story having like the wrought iron balcony. That is Muriel's Jackson Square. Now, originally it was a private residence and then it turned into a saloon and then it was a pasta factory and then a grocery store and then it got renovated (laughs) into Muriel's. Now, before it opened to the public in 2001, the land that the city sits on has had a string of owners and lots of tragedy since it's one of the oldest pieces of settled land within the city. When the city was founded, the land the restaurant now sits on was granted to Claude Trepignier, a member of Bienville's expedition party who founded the city. Uh, Trepignier constructed a small cottage on the land and reportedly used to house slaves waiting for auction there. Because of huh. this reputation in particular, a lot of clairvoyants in the city believe that that plot of land and the surrounding area have become home to a lot of troubled souls. Um, spirit, I can see that. Yeah, like spirits of servants or enslaved peoples who were held, housed there. Between 1743 and 1762, Jean-Baptiste de the royal treasurer of the French Louisiana colonies, purchased the property and then proceeded to build a lavish mansion there. When he passed away, the property changed hand, hands a couple times, and then it was partially burnt in the devastating 1788 Good Friday fire. Uh, this fire was huge, and it destroyed almost 77% of the city of New Orleans. By the way, when they did the 2001 renovations, the owners of Muriel's actually discovered some of the original charred walls and floors of the mansion, which I think is kind of awesome. Huh. Yeah. But the most important owner is a man named Pierre-Antoine Lepardi Jordan, who purchased the damaged property and rebuilt it after the 1788 fire. Now, Jordan loved this house. He had put a lot of time and energy into restoring it, but he also loved to gamble. And unfortunately, in 1814, he bet the house in a game of poker, and he no. lost. Mm-hmm. Never do that. Never do it. I don't know. I don't gamble, though, so I really can't, you know, but I would never. You got to, like the great Kenny Rogers said, you got to know when to fold them. 
Exactly. Now, of course, uh, Jadan was absolutely devastated, and he ended up hanging himself on the second floor of his home rather than handing the mansion over. Oh. In 1823, Julien Poydras, the president of the Louisiana State Senate, director of the Louisiana Bank, and the owner of half a dozen plantations, purchased the house. Unfortunately, after he moved in, he only lived there about a year before he died. His family continued to own the property through the 1880s. Then as we head towards the 20th century, the property was purchased several times and turned into a commercial building, holding a restaurant and a saloon at first, and then it became a grocery store and a pasta factory. In the 1970s, the commercial space was finally renovated slowly into a restaurant. And in 2001, as I mentioned before, Muriel's purchased the property and renovated it into what it is today. Now, most of the paranormal activity that you can find at Muriel's really happens on the second floor where Jardin killed himself and also where the slaves of the house were once quartered. Why am I not surprised in the least? Right. Now, the space that currently occupies that section of the restaurant is called Muriel's Seance Lounge, which I'm like, thank you. That's awesome. And they have definitely <laughs> leaned into it. You can check out Muriel's website and see pictures of the lounge. And it is awesome looking with like velvet curtains, very dark woods. It was, it seems like a really cool place to hang out and enjoy maybe a Zazak, Zazarak or a Vukare. That's awesome. Now, several guests who have been in the lounge have reported seeing a man who matches Jordan's description. He's described as a, quote, glimmer of sparkly lights before appearing as a partial body apparition, and he's been seen throughout the building. Uh, at times, objects have seemed to float through the restaurant. Uh, several patrons and also the owners think that that's a sign of Jordan's ghost passing through the space. Now, while Jordan's the chief spirit that you can find at Muriel's, uh, he's not the only one. In the courtyard bar at Muriel's, another ghost known to be a bit of a rowdier spirit tends to wreak minor havoc with the guests. Uh, since March 2001, there have been several occasions where glasses have been hurled about 12 feet from the bar across to a brick wall and broken when there's been no live person even close to the glasses. Spirits in bars and restaurants love breaking the glasses. I mean, it must feel so good to be like, rah, smash. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I, I would enjoy that too, I think. So <laughs> not going to lie. Um, along with glasses, this spirit also likes to smash full bottles of wine. <laughs> oh, that's not so fun. Yeah, apparently that's only happened once, maybe twice. Um, but clearly the hijinks could be from, if not one goes several. Um, there's definitely some speculation about what's causing these incidents, especially in the, the courtyard. Some of the theories um, from uh, Muriel patrons and also some psychic investigators who have come in to kind of track the phenomenons at the restaurant have decided that it could be ghostly servants in the afterlife who are still trying to serve their master, Jordan, and they break glasses to let off steam because they're a servant for freaking eternity. <laughs> Well, yeah, that would really fucking suck. Mm -hmm. They think it could be some of the previous patrons who just really loved to party at the property when it was a saloon and just get too rowdy. Um, other people think it could actually be Jordan himself, who's trying to communicate with mortals. Um, he kind of may be confused and think that the patrons are actually his family, and he's trying to get their attention. 
Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bad case of mistaken identity. The International Society for Paranormal Research has investigated Muriel's and they have designated it as one of New Orleans' most haunted sites. And as I mentioned before, there have been several additional paranormal investigations at Muriel's. These investigators do report sighting inexplicable shadows and also hearing disembodied voices. Again, the seance lounge on the second floor seems to be the center of most of the paranormal activity. In the lounge, you can actually hear a distinct pattern of knocking on the walls, almost like someone's trying to tap out a form of communication. Huh. They've also said that they have heard uh, and documented a female voice in the area, even when there's no women in the lounge. So despite this kind of unsettling take on, you know, glasses being hurled around, maybe some creepy ass knocking and a lady kind of muttering to herself, Muriel's has been known to have pretty harmless ghosts. So it's more of like, have a great meal and maybe get a little spooked, but nothing bad's going to happen to you. Well, that's good at least. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could have something positive. And here's my favorite part and why I just think this is such a delightful restaurant. The owners of Muriel's celebrate their ghostly guest and former owner, Jordan, by keeping a permanent table reserved for his ghost, complete with bread and red wine. We've seen this before in other places, yep, too. Yep. And every day they make sure that they freshly set his table. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so if you have a chance, I highly recommend stopping by Muriel's Jackson Square because it's open to the public. Uh, reservations are recommended. They are an open table. And you can visit the seance lounge, check out Jordan's table in the lounge, and, you know, just enjoy a really lovely meal. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Eden, any thoughts? Would you swing by Lafitte's for some purple drink and maybe grab some gumbo or etouffee at Muriel's? I would definitely, you know, try all of it. Not the gumbo. I'm not a seafood person, so (laughs) not going to do the gumbo. Um, but I would definitely go to both. Um, I would check them out because I don't know. I've, I've wanted to go to New Orleans for a long time just because, like I said, I love the architecture. I love all of it. It just, it seems like a really cool place. I, I don't really like the ghosts at, uh, Jean Lafitte. <laughs> uh, I don't like how like weirdly sexually creepy they are. And I definitely don't like that red eyed thing because fuck that. <laughs> I know that was kind of the the clincher for me. I was like, "Oh God, that's creepy as hell." Yeah, yeah. I hate pervert ghosts, so that you know, a lot of that's out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and who knows, the red eyes might be a pervert too. They'd be like, "Take off your clothes," but they don't have a mouth to say it with. So they're so. just trying to like get you to. They're, that's why they're glaring because they're like, "If I glare they're long enough, you with their eyes, <laughs> their red, scary eyes, possibly trying um, to undress you and steal your soul. We don't know. Exactly, it could be both." Um, but yeah, the second one seems a lot more bearable with the ghosts. I mean, you know, a glass will break and I'll just shout Mazel Tov and we'll be good. <laughs> All right, then it's a date. So what were your sources? My sources were TripAdvisor, Encyclopedia Britannica, stcharlesin.com, mentalfloss, eater.com, Jean Lafitte, Black Ships. Oh my gosh, I cannot say that. <laughs> Jean Lafitte, blacksmithshop.com. Forbes Magazine, HauntedRooms.com, Thrillist, NolaGhost.com, and Muriel's.com. Oh, a lot of sources this week. Yeah, there's a lot of good info out there. I have to say, I did 
there's a lot of haunted places in the French Quarter. So there's tons of tours you can take, but also just like specific ones. Like here, you're going to go on a haunted cocktail tour because there are numerous haunted bars. Um, but these are just the two bars and rest, the, the two of them that I was like, this place, these these touch me in a special place and I think I would definitely go there. Some of the other ones just seem kind of like, you know, the normal stuff we've seen in other parts of the country with haunted like restaurants and bars. Well, it seems like Jean Lafitte's ghosts would definitely um, touch you in a special place. Yeah. So there are like some pretty creepy like stories about people being like women specifically, not just people, but women being in the ladies room and feeling like a pinch. Ugh. And I'm like, oh, I don't like it. Oh, mm-mm. So there's that. So you're right on with the the pervy read on that that ghost pirate. Yes. Alrighty, I guess that's our show for today. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can do so at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You could also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Um, if you have a moment, please rate and review us. It always helps to bubble up our tiny little podcast to other listeners who might enjoy some of our funny and scary tales. Uh, we'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on, creeping, creeping on. on.